All right, so in Romans 12, we'll start there in just a second, um, but I want to do just a really quick review of last week. Last week, I just asked the question, it was the main question of the sermon, why do we even bother to gather together in person on Sunday mornings? Why not just stay home on Zoom? Why not just go to the Starbucks by yourself and read the Bible for an hour and have a quiet time? Um, why even do this? Well, why get together in person? And we saw in 1 Corinthians 14 that even though the presenting issue on the surface is all this weird stuff about speaking in tongues and prophecy, that's really just the presenting issue. The real issue is when we get together, Paul wants certain things to be happening, certain things not to be happening, and we basically asked and answered three different questions. What do we do when we gather together? We all seek to be built up and to build one another up. That is that it's almost like a building project that the body of Christ is in process of being built into a temple, a spiritual house, a building that God can dwell in. And every week, this is a building project. We're coming together, not just to experience things for their own sake and you go home later on and it made no difference or it was just fun for the moment, but something transformative should be happening where all of us collectively and individually are becoming more like Christ through the spirit when we gather together in a way that can't happen if we don't gather together. The second question was, how does that happen? How does the body of Christ get built up? And the answer is not hire a really great pastor who's got some good gifts. It's not have a couple of superheroes in your congregation. It's every single person participates with the gifts that they have in order to build up the body of Christ. The Exodus passage we've been slowly reading the last couple of weeks, I read part of it last week, Nancy read part of it today, is literally a building project where Israel is building the tabernacle and the spirit is poured out on different people to give them skill to help build this um, project that God wants to dwell in. And the third and final question was, well, why do we do that? Why, why do we get together to be built up? Why do we get together and participate in order to build each other up? And the answer in First Corinthians 14 was so that we can encounter and experience God in his power and his presence. If I ask you a question, why are you looking forward to, you know, Friday night this week when you get together with some friends? Why are you looking forward to going into the office rather than working from home this week if you are? And almost all of what we really look forward to in life, I think if we're Healthy human beings is we look forward to spending time with other people, not comma, so that we can get something from them, but just because we want to experience them, just because relationship with them is what we ultimately care about. And we get together to actually be in relationship with God in a way that we cannot experience when we are on our own. The question today, and we're going to look at Romans 12 briefly and in 1 Corinthians 12 more at length, is what exactly does this participate? participation category look like. And the first thing I just want to just try to persuade you of is that it's not enough. It's a good thing. If you show up, that's good. That's better than staying at home or not going to church at all. If you show up and you serve, if you set up chairs beforehand or you break down chairs afterwards, or if you bring food, that's great. But nonetheless, our, our goal should not be just any old participation. There's a very specific participation that each of you should strive to kind of live out that is unique to you and is connected to your spiritual gift or gifts, which you probably heard in a couple of our passages. Right now, March Madness is going on, the NCAA tournament. I'm a huge basketball fan. And, and so here's an analogy of how I want you to think about your place in the body of Christ. If you are a basketball player, and I've told some of you this before, my dad was a really tall guy. He was 6'3", and I hit my growth spurt earlier than all the other guys in my class. I was as tall as I am now in seventh grade. I thought I was going to be 6'5". In seventh grade, I was the center on my basketball team, and I just dominated everybody because I was as tall as I am now. Nobody for the last 30 years, 28 years has ever looked at me and said, huh, he's tall. 
Now, fortunately, nobody looks at me and says, oh, he's George. just like, he's a guy. He's kind of like an average height, which is exactly what I am. 5'11 and a half. I didn't even hit six feet tall. And so when I was young, I was really tall. And so I played center. And so I practiced in basketball practice, boxing out to get rebounds. I, I practiced having my back to the basket and kind of doing like a little jump hook and stuff like that. And as I shrank or better as all the other boys caught up to me, I went down the power forward and then I went down the small forward and then I ended up a shooting guard, which is what I ended up playing in high school. And depending on which position you are on the team, you need to do very different things than other people. And so if you are a point guard on a basketball team, you should not be spending all of your time throughout the week trying to bench press 350 pounds and trying to like work on your vertical so you can dunk on people. You should be practicing your dribbling. You should be practicing your outside shot. You should be practicing passes. That's what you should be. And if you're 6'11", you should not be dribbling between your legs during practice and trying to shoot fadeaway threes. You should get under the basket and dunk on people. That's all you should do all game long. And so which part of the team you are, if you're a point guard, do 99% of point guard stuff and don't worry about the stuff centers do. Trust your center to do that. I would say if you are a hand, spend as much time and energy as you can in the body of Christ being a hand and not trying to be a foot or trying to be an eye or trying to be an ear, trust the ears and the eyes and the feet to do that stuff. You just be a hand. And so it's not just show up and participate, but participate as the part of the body you are, both in Romans 12. And if you look at Romans 12 in verse six, it's there. And then later on, I think it's in verse six. Yeah, it's in, in verse six. Then later on, our benediction today is going to come from First Peter 4, which is another passage that lists spiritual gifts in the New Testament. In both Romans 12, verse 6, and First Peter 4, give us the command with respect to our spiritual gifts, let us use them. And so it's not enough to just know what your spiritual gifts are, although you should. It's not enough to be good at them. They shouldn't lie dormant. You should be using them on a regular basis in the body of Christ. Um, and that's what I want us to focus on today. In Romans 12, I just want you to notice two things very briefly. And, and I hope you come back to this passage. It's a great one. If you know Romans, and for us Protestants, Romans is one of the great Reformation documents, probably a favorite book of many of you. You could almost sum up Romans as saying all of Romans 1 through 11 is what God has done for the world, for us. For his people. And Romans 1 through 11 is all what God has done in his grace to redeem the world. And then starting in the passage Arturo started in, Romans 12 verse 1, there's this therefore. And Romans 12 through 16 is really our response to the gospel, our response to God's grace. And the first two verses of chapter 12 are pretty famous. So let's just hear them again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, which is really, and it's plural there, it's really like, in light of everything that I told you in Romans 1 through 11, in response to that, Here's what you do. Present your bodies, plural, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or logical act of service. Do not be conformed to the world. Don't keep acting the way you did before you came into the body of Christ. Rather, be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that by testing, you might discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I'll bet a lot of you recognize that passage. It's familiar to you. It's even important to you. I'll bet that almost all of us don't connect it the way Paul does. Not only notice that the next paragraph, verses three through eight, immediately go into spiritual gifts. Look at the first word in verse three. Four, because. 
Paul's not moving on to a new subject. He's saying that spiritual gifts are the first way, not the only way, but the first way that we respond in an act of service to God's grace. The first thing he says is, by the grace given to me as an apostle, this is my role. I'm teaching you guys how to do this, Paul is saying. And then later on in verse six, he says, therefore, um, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Paul's not the only one given grace to serve. We're each given grace, even though none of us are apostles like Paul is. And then in verse three, I just want to point this out because I think it's often misunderstood. Paul says, by the grace given to me as an apostle, I say to all of you, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. That's literally in Greek, hubris. Hubris is a Greek word. We literally just take it from Greek. Don't, don't be uh, hubristic. Don't be arrogant. Don't, don't, don't be puffed up. Don't think you're better than you are or something more than you are, but rather to think with sober judgment, not to think more lowly of yourself than you are, but just to think accurately of yourself. And then he gives a kind of qualification. Each of us, according to the measure of faith, that God has assigned. Now, if you're anything like me, you probably hear there, okay, so if I only have 23% of faith, I should only think of myself as like right here, but somebody else has got 64% faith, they can think of themselves a little more highly. And, and we're almost like measuring who's got more faith and who's got less faith in the body of Christ. That's not at all what Paul is saying. The measure of faith assigned to each of us is not a quantitative difference. You have a little more, he has a little less. It's a qualitative difference. The faith you've been given is the faith to serve this way. The faith you've been given is to lead in this way. The faith you've been given is to do this. That is the measure of faith assigned to you is whether you're an ear or an eye or a foot or a leg or a hand or whatever it is. That's the measure of faith assigned to you. And each of you should think of yourself as that rather than being like, oh, I'm, I'm the head of the body or I'm the whole body or I'm this other thing that I'm actually not good at. You should think of yourself as whatever God has assigned to you as a function in the body of Christ, which is correlated with your spiritual gifts. And then under the first gift he lists, which is in, I'm just going to move this real quick so I can get a little closer. The first gift he lists is in verse six, having gifts that differ, there's diversity in the body of Christ, according to the grace given to us, let us use them. There's a command, if prophecy in proportion to our faith. Now there's a debate over this, but I'm convinced that Paul is not correlating faith with prophecy as if it's somehow distinct of the prophecy that, that when he says, if you, you have prophecy, use it in proportion to your faith. I think it's assumed that that's also true for the rest of the gifts. That is, if God has assigned to you a measure of faith that includes the gift of prophecy, then use that gift of prophecy. If he hasn't, then don't try to do that. If he has given you the gift of mercy, do that in proportion to the faith that he has given you. That is, the faith is correlated with the kind of spiritual gift we are given. And so Paul assumes, and I'll end very briefly at the end of our sermon today, and as I do this, I encourage you to turn to 1 Corinthians 12. This will be where we'll spend most of our time. I'll end with some of the classic practical questions that come up whenever we talk about spiritual gifts. How many of them are there? There are four lists of gifts in the New Testament, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, both of which we read, Ephesians 4, which we read last week, and 1 Peter 4, which we'll do in the benediction today. None of those lists are the same. All four lists are different. And so there's clearly no exhaustive list in any one place. Most Christians argue, and I think they're right, that even if you add up the four spiritual gift lists in the New Testament, you still do not have an exhaustive list. 
that there are more spiritual gifts than are listed in the New Testament. For instance, Joanna and Chris and Eric just led us in musical worship, and that's never mentioned in a spiritual gift list, but clearly that's a role in the body of Christ. It's there in the Old Testament. There are many things that you can think about that Christians need to do when they gather together that are not in these lists. So, so how many gifts are there? Well, we'll talk very briefly at the end. What exactly are these gifts? Like speaking in tongues, I have so many questions, right? You're probably thinking that. Or prophecy, what exactly would that look like? Like miracles, that still happens today. What exactly are all the gifts in the list? I'm just going to address that very, very briefly at the end. And then maybe the most practical is how do I know which ones I have? How do I know which ones I have? I want to end very briefly with that, but then hopefully it's a discussion we continue to have as a church. What I want to do today is looking at 1 Corinthians 12, just basically have us think for a few minutes about the role of spiritual gifts in the way we gather together, not just for this hour and a half, but afterwards when we go back to our church building throughout the week and Bible studies and small groups and prayer meetings and just when we get together for fellowship and for socials and for meals, how do we operate towards each other? other when we get together all of us participate and, and and here's a very easy in one sense or at least simple but in another sense it will take you a long time honestly the rest of your life to figure out exactly what it looks like it should be an aim consciously intentionally that every single time you get together with other christians you try to be what part of the body god has called you to be that you regularly operate as a point guard if you're a point guard and not be like, well, I'm not going to do anything. Or I guess I got to be a small forward this time because somebody else is here to be a small forward. Um, you should always be trying to participate in the, the particular role and in the particular gifts God has given you. So one quick thing, and then we're going to make a couple of points from 1 Corinthians 12. In general, we're talking about the Holy Spirit here. We call these spiritual gifts. This will be another time, Lord willing, in the future, we'll talk more at length about the Holy Spirit. One of the things that shoots us in the foot right away on this category is lots of misconceptions about the Holy Spirit in general and stuff like the miraculous, or if you want to use this language, the supernatural in particular. We are in Western culture, I think the heirs of really unhelpful ways of thinking about this. For instance, I said this last week with ministry history, if you were here, it's a pet peeve of mine, but I'm not going to be legalistic about it, which is I'm not in ministry as a pastor in any distinctive way. I am not a minister in any distinctive way. We are all called to ministry. You are all ministers. One of the places we see that is in First Corinthians 12, which we'll talk about. I'm a big fan of not ever using the word miracle. And miracle is not a biblical word. Every single time it appears, it's another word. And not only is the word not there, it's an English word that we put there, but I don't even think the concept is there. In 1 Corinthians 12, in our English translations, miracles is one of the gifts that is mentioned. Here's one thing I want you to notice. Anytime in the New Testament, because miracles never, signs and wonders show up in the Old Testament. Miracles are never mentioned in English translations in the Old Testament. Anytime miracles appears in your English translation, the word there is literally the word power and in the plural, powers, which is a very different concept than miracles. Here's the reason in a nutshell, I don't like using miracle language. And if you've looked at these spiritual gift lists, that we just read or Toro just read and Hannah just read out loud. Do you notice that they are to our eyes and our ears as Western people, they are a strange mix of the miraculous and the mundane. There's like healing somebody prophecy. And then there's like administration and helping somebody. And both of these are spiritual gifts. There is no clear dividing line between natural and supernatural, ordinary, extraordinary, miraculous, and mundane, because I think there just is no line between those in a biblical worldview. If you use language like miracle, 
If you use language like this is a supernatural event that just happened, it is very difficult in our culture not to be speaking out of and speaking to for other people a mindset of normally God's not at work, but then every once in a while he does something. And it's very, very hard to avoid that connotation. God is usually not at work. It's usually deism. Usually like he wound up the clock, it's running on its own. But every once in a while, he steps in and he does something. That's not a Christian way to understand the world. God is upholding everything that he made. He is always at work. He is always sovereignly present in every moment in different ways. If you want to use this language, in a miracle, he either acts in a slightly unusual way or to use this word power. You ever play video games when you're a kid and there's this moment where like the character gets like supercharged with a super ability. He gets powered up. That's what happens in spiritual gifts or in miracles. It's nothing different has happened. It's just ordinary things have been kind of supercharged a little more, but God is still at work there. In this, um, one of the questions that always comes up with spiritual gifts are, are spiritual gifts kind of like things I was naturally good at even before I was a Christian? And then the spirit just takes them and kind of like uses them in a new direction. Or are they like new things that I couldn't do before I was a Christian? And the answer to that question is yes. They're both. And for each of you, it will look a little different. For some of you, you will find, for instance, um, some of this is probably because of a tough relationship I had with my dad. My dad was a public school teacher. If you look back on it now, my easily, my, my main spiritual gift is teaching. When I went to college, I never wanted to be a teacher. And a lot of that probably had to do with like reacting against a dad and all of that. But as I became a Christian and as I started hanging out in the body of Christ, I found out very slowly over many years, huh, this is something that I'm half decent at. If you could find videotape, which thank God you cannot, of the first hundred times I tried to teach, you would want to not be a Christian anymore, <laughs> right? The Holy Spirit would go right out of the room. Your faith would be challenged and you would think this guy should never stand up in front of a group of people again. And so it took me a really long time to figure out that this is at all a gift I have. And so how do you explain it? Do you explain it as Nick just didn't know that he was naturally good at this and then becoming a Christian? Or do you say there was a gift imparted there that he didn't have before? So I have no idea. But whatever it is, it happens differently for each of us. And it's in general unhelpful to use a supernatural, natural distinction category, miraculous, mundane category. The spirit just comes upon us and reinvigorates and does new things with our created capacities that God has given us. In, in classic Christian language, grace does not destroy nature. Grace does not ignore nature. Grace does not take us beyond nature. Grace restores nature and it fulfills nature. That is, and so here's the main way I want you to think about the Holy Spirit overall. If you would look at, some of you know, my son Taekwon is a freshman in college. Many of you have been in college in the last few years recently. If you look, especially as maybe like you come from outer space as an extraterrestrial, you're doing, a, you're doing an examination of planet Earth and the human species, and you look at a 19-year-old boy who's a college student, and you look at all the things he does throughout the week, and you're like, is there any rhyme and reason to all the things this human being does throughout the week? Like he watches Netflix, in the middle of the afternoon and he stays up till 4 a.m. and he sleeps till 11 a.m. And, and like he eats at really weird times and he, he hangs out with different kinds of people and then he like binge studies and he gets depressed and he gets excited like like what connects the dots here and if you don't know what a college student is 
in, in our cultural context, you will look at all the different things this person does and you'll be like, there's no rhyme and reason here. I would guess that if you look at all the things the Holy Spirit does in scripture, and let me just give you a couple. And, and if we had time, we could easily in a group discussion list like a hundred things you see the Holy Spirit do, do in scripture. Here's a couple. The Holy Spirit regularly inspires whether people to speak or scriptures to be written, gives boldness to share the gospel, helps people to speak the word of God's or the words of God or hear the words of God, gives new life in the Nicene Creed. He's the Lord, the giver of life. He has authority, gives new life. In a couple of weeks, it's going to be Easter and Christians confess not just that God raised his son from the dead on Easter, but that God raised his son from the dead through the spirit. The spirit of God is what put new life into Jesus's body and got him up out of the grave on Easter 2000 years ago. The spirit heals, the spirit empowers people to do things. The spirit convicts of sin. The spirit comforts and suffering. The spirit illuminates, gives new insight. The spirit reveals, the spirit comes upon people. The spirit fills people. The spirit baptizes people in power. And, and you look at all these things and I could mention dozens more. Is there anything that connects the dots between all these things the Holy Spirit is doing? And here in a nutshell, in like 30 seconds, is my doctrine of the Holy Spirit, as well as in 30 seconds, you get so much right here, and as well as my doctrine of sin. Here's what sin is. It's what makes you a weirdo. Sin is turning the world upside down and all the things human beings are supposed to be, all the things that should make us normal and ordinary, sin makes us weirdos. When you love money more than people, that's weirdo stuff. When you find your identity in your job, rather than in loving God and in your neighbor, that's weirdo stuff, even though in our culture, it all feels normal. When you only care about your own desires and not the well-being of other people, that's weirdo stuff, even though it's all normal in our culture. Everything the Holy Spirit seeks to do has one end in view, to make you normal again. The Holy Spirit has one job, to make you human again, not to make you more than human, not to make you something other than, not to make you religious, not to make you spiritual, not to make you care less about sex and food and hanging out with friends in the world and to like really enjoy reading the Bible and closing your eyes and praying and, and all that. The spirit is there in everything that he does in order to make us normal again. And so in spiritual gifts, he is not coming in from the outside to do something miraculous. He's not coming in from the outside to do something new or religious spiritual, he's coming in to reform us into the human beings we should have been all along, which is unique, diverse, and giving gifts that are different from other people, all of which are essential in their diversity, all aimed at glorifying God in loving one another and serving the common good. And so the Holy Spirit is here to make us normal. And so 1 Corinthians 12 is a picture of a normal human community in diversity and yet unified in certain ways. And so here's the first main point. I encourage you to, again, open up to 1 Corinthians 12. The first point that we see in this chapter is that there is both unity and diversity in the body of Christ. There are things that we are profoundly different from each other in and should be, and there are things that should unite us that we should all have in common. And it is important to figure out what things where diversity is allowed. For instance, we should not have diversity in murder. 
Some of you should not be murderers while others of you are not murderers. We should not have diversity in that. There are other things that we should have diversity in. All of you should feel, I hope, at home and welcome in your different cultural backgrounds, in your different racial and ethnic backgrounds when you come to the body of Christ and not feel like, well, this group's the real Christians and us over here, like, like we're second class Christians. We come from different socioeconomic backgrounds. We come from different educational backgrounds. If we went around and we talked about our Myers-Briggs and our Enneagram, we would be all over the map and we should be. If you were all Enneagram fives, if you were all introverts, I would have to back up and be like, we're doing something wrong. We're doing something wrong that only these people feel at home here. And so there's all kinds of diversity. And for Paul, the main way of diversity is you are given incredibly different gifts in order to serve the body of Christ. I had a friend years ago who still says this. I've always found it helpful. Which I'll share it here. You could almost explain many denominational differences and many churches that are different from each other, not by, well, all of these Christians think this theologically, but these guys do. Most churches at this point in history, if you walk in and be like, do you even know why you're a Methodist? Most people don't even know in Methodist churches what it means to be a Methodist. Do you know why you're a Presbyterian and not an Episcopalian? Do you know why you're this kind of Presbyterian and not that kind of Presbyterian. And I thought, that's not why most people go to different churches. Most people go to different churches for a couple of reasons. One, other people are like them socially in that circle. Reinhold Niebuhr here in New York, or I think it was his brother, Richard Niebuhr here in New York, a hundred years ago, wrote a book called The Social Sources of Denominationalism. And his main point was race, and economic class have much more to do with why some people end up in this church than that church than theology ever does. But the other thing I would say is that if you like really, you know, in-depth sermons, probably neighborhood church is something that, that you know, it, you enjoy. But if you want to like be speaking in tongues and to be like falling on the ground and worship, this is probably not the church that, that you, you probably feel like, man, we're really inhibited here. We're, we're really like, you know, cold and reserved and all that. I think you could look at different churches and see what often connects why all these people are in that church, why all those people are in that church is that church is filled with a bunch of hands and that church is filled with a bunch of eyes. And that church is filled with a bunch of feet and they're all living in their comfort zone all day long. And what you do is you get in all the unhealthy things that happen in churches happen when you get not a full body, but you get like just one or two or three kinds of body parts and you just ignore the rest of the Christian experience in the Christian faith. And so when Paul looks at the diversity in the body of Christ, he doesn't see a problem to be solved. He sees a sovereign act of God assembling a people who are supposed to be profoundly different from each other. And so what do we have in common then? And there at the very beginning, chapter 12, verses one through three, that by the spirit of God, that's one thing we have in common. If you're a Christian, no matter how different you are from other Christians, you have the spirit. The spirit is not given to elite Christians at a later second stage. The day you became a Christian, you receive the spirit of God. Paul says in chapter 12, verse 13, sorry, verse, yeah, 13. In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Everybody has the spirit. And by that spirit, everybody in the body of Christ looks at Jesus crucified, risen, and says, he's Lord. He's in charge. That's the one thing, along with the spirit, that everybody should have in common in the body of Christ. Outside of that, we literally have nothing in common with each other. There is nothing else that we can expect everybody in this room needs to be. We will never ask you how you vote 
not because it doesn't matter how you vote, but because it's not what holds us together. We will never ask you, where did you go to school or where did you not go to school? We will not ask you, did you work this job? Or are you going to go pursue that? We will not ask you, are you young or are you old? We're not going to, we're not going to expect anything other than that we're following Jesus together in our diversity. And by the way, it's often pointed out that this image, this metaphor that we're one body and yet different members, that it was a very common metaphor in the ancient world. The Christians didn't come up with it. It was used by the Greeks, by the Romans, used everywhere for any political body, for any community. And yet the Christians didn't just take it and reorient it. They used it in a way that I think is more than a metaphor. It is true that it's a metaphor that we are the body of Christ and hands, right? Like Chris is not literally a foot even though he might be that role in the body. There is another sense, nonetheless, in which we are one body, we are the body of Christ, is not a metaphor, but is literally the truth. On Easter, 2,000 years ago, and we're going to celebrate this in a couple of weeks, Jesus in his body got out of the grave. Then he walked around and he did stuff for 40 more days, and then he ascended with his body into heaven, and he still has his body, and he will have his body forever. He will be fully God, fully human forever. And so Jesus is no longer physically here. When we are told we are the body of Christ, there is a sense in which that is literally the case. We are the physical manifestation of the risen Jesus in this world. We are his hands and his feet. When whatever people experience of Jesus, they experience through us, through our words and through our actions. And we are called to be the body of Christ. And it's in that context that all of these spiritual gifts always get mentioned. So second thing, and I want you to jump to verses four through seven. This is really, at least for today, the heart of the passage. What exactly are spiritual gifts? Like when we talk about spiritual gifts, what are we talking about? What is the nature of them? And in verses four through seven, Paul gives us a bunch of different angles to look at the same one reality, spiritual gifts. Let me look, say, read this again. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. Now there are varieties of service or ministry, but the same Lord. Now there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in every one of you. To each of us is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. I think those are the most important verses in the Bible on spiritual gifts. And I want you to notice that four different words are used for spiritual gifts there. The first one in verse four, and I'm actually going to tell you the Greek behind each one because you're going to recognize some of them. The first word in verse four is there are varieties of gifts. And the Greek word there is charismata. If you have ever heard some Christians say they're charismatic, this is where this word comes from. If you've ever met a girl named Chorus, This is the Greek word for grace. The main word for spiritual gifts is actually not a word that's connected to the Holy Spirit. It's a word that's connected to grace. Holy spirits are not, sorry, spiritual gifts are not so much spiritual as much as they are gifts. They are gifts that God has given you. They are concrete manifestations in your life of God's grace, which is one of the reasons I'll I'll come back to this later. In verse 11, Paul says, all of these, whether all of us or all of the gifts we've been given, all of these are empowered by one in the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. That's a statement that what gifts you have and what gifts you don't have comes from a sovereign decision from the Holy Spirit, that he is in charge of what he gives and what he doesn't do. And so I just want to say this holds more broadly, and this is why it's not helpful to have a miraculous, mundane, supernatural, natural distinction. This holds more broadly in life, but I'll say especially here, 
on the one hand, some of us, and I would include myself in this category, waste way too much time and energy wishing we were something other than we are looking in the mirror and wishing we saw something different looking back, looking at other people's personalities and wishing we were more like them rather than we are ourselves. And if we do that, it's understandable, but there's always a misunderstanding of how God works. There are things to admire in other people, absolutely. But if you say, oh, I wish I was more like them, almost certainly what's going on is either you haven't seen yet and realized, or you don't appreciate as much. There are things that are unbelievable that God has equipped you to do. There are things that are unrivaled, unprecedented, un unparalleled that you can do that nobody else in the body of Christ can bring. And if we don't see that, if we waste lots of time and energy being envious or, or feeling pity for ourselves, there's something about missing the gifts that God has given us in the way he has. And again, you might not think this because I'm up here on the stage. I've been doing this for many years. I love what I do. But for most of my life, I've longed to be an extrovert rather than an introvert. I've longed when I was younger and single for women to find me more compelling than they do. I have longed to be taller than I am. I have longed to be more athletic than I am. So much of my time and energy has gone into why do I have to be this way? And there's something that we miss in God's grace when we feel that way. And so again, I don't want you to feel rebuked or anything like that. I just want you to know it doesn't have to be that way in your life. It shouldn't be that way in your life. On the other hand, and this is, this is hard for me to imagine, but I know you're out there. If you're like looking in the mirror being like, yeah. <laughs> if you think you are God's gift to women or to men or to the body of Christ or to the world, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. If you were disconnected from the rest of the body for five seconds, you'd be on life support. You desperately need the rest of the body, Christ, and you are nothing special compared to anybody else. And so this really helps us to think about ourselves with sober judgment. And another thing it reminds us of is that God's grace certainly is God's pardon, God's forgiveness of sins, but it's much more than that. God's grace is also his power in our lives. God's grace is also his presence in our lives. God's grace is not just something in the past one time we received or that Jesus did. It's also through the spirit, something we daily, hourly experience. So spiritual gifts are charismata, they're gifts of grace in concrete form. When you are using your spiritual gift, God's grace is going public in those moments. On the other hand, here's the second thing. In the next line, just as there are many gifts that come, many varieties of gifts that come from the same spirit, there are many varieties of service, or you could say ministry, from the same Lord, the same Lord Jesus. This is a word that if you've been in neighborhood church for the last year, I've used a couple of times. Dan, would you wave your hand back there? Raise your hand back there. Dan is our deacon in this church. And this is the word diakonoin, where we get deacon from. This is a word that is a very, it's not a religious word in the ancient Greek world. It is not a fancy word. It is the word that you use for the waiter at a table in a restaurant. This is a guy who shows up, a girl who shows up and just waits on other people's needs and literally if you've ever gone to a restaurant, you know, the main reason you go to a restaurant is not to ask the waiter questions of how his week has been. Now, if you're a kind person, you might also try to do that, but you go there and you expect we're going to have this experience and they're here to serve us. And if you've ever been a waiter, you're there to serve them. And they're like, can you believe those customers? They didn't even ask me how my day was. We're like, oh, you're, you're here to be a waiter. That's, that, that, that's why you're getting paid. Everybody with your spiritual gift, you're a waiter. You're a waiter at a table. Your spiritual gift is not for you. It is for everybody else. 
It is not for you to feel better about yourself. It is not for you to impress other people. It's not for your own entertainment. It's not for your own experience. It is there to serve other people. This is literally where we get the word ministry from in the New Testament. It is a ministry. It is a stewardship given to you for other people. It's something you hold in trust that other people need from you. And to use this kind of classical language, it is a vocation. Your spiritual gift is a vocation for you. We'll talk at the end very briefly. Do you have one? Do you have many? I think either is possible. You certainly have at least one. But whatever your spiritual gift is, whatever your place in the body, a hand and eye, whatever, it is a vocation for you. It is something where you are there, verse 7, to serve the common good. Chapter 14, to build up other Christians, to edify them. Chapter 13, to love other people with. Put it this way, you cannot love other people well without using your spiritual gifts. You cannot love other people well while trying to be a hand when you're actually a foot or trying to be an eye when you're actually an ear. The third thing is that if they're spiritual gifts from the Father and their ministries or acts of service from Jesus, from the Spirit they are, and this is the one that I think is translated unhelpfully, activities. There's a variety of activities. This is verse 6 from the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Activities makes it seem like it's about what you're doing. And certainly you're doing something with your spiritual gift. But the Greek word here is energomaton. And, and you can kind of hear it's where we get energy from. The, the focus here is not that you're doing something. It's that you're being energized while you do it. A better translation than activities would be many empowerments. That every time you use your spiritual gift, you're the video game character being powered up. This is the moment when the Holy Spirit powers you up to do something that human beings can't usually do on your own. It's the moment. I could spend so much more time doing this and for multiple reasons. I don't, I'm an introvert. I don't, I really don't like talking about myself. I, I really promise that. But also it's not the point. In spaces, in relationships and communities before, if I'm not using any of my gifts, sometimes it's nice to take a break for sure. But in general, I often feel like unknown and unseen if I'm not using my gifts. When I'm using my gifts, I come alive in a way that I'm not alive in any other space in ways that if I'm trying to be a hand, but I'm not a hand, it just feels so lame. It feels so dry. It just feels like being unseen. When you use your gift, there's an energy that the spirit is pouring into and through you. You're like this video game character who's being powered up to serve other people. It's where the Holy Spirit's life and power really come to expression in your experience. And you have some areas of life where all of you have that capacity. And there are other areas where you're like, I wish I could be the life of the party, but you just can't because you're an introvert and you're not an extrovert. No matter how much you try, you can't be good at that. But there are things that the spirit will use you in and will energize and empower you. And then maybe most significantly in some ways in verse seven, verse seven gives us one last angle, one last glimpse of spiritual gifts. It says this, to each one of us is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good manifestation appearance. It's literally a word for something that has gone visible that can now be seen when a spiritual gift is being used. The Holy spirit is being seen in action. Here's how Sam storms puts it. It's a quote that I put at the beginning of the bulletin. You don't need to look at it, but I encourage you to listen to this as I read it. Here's how Sam storms. One of the great thinkers on spiritual gifts puts it. He says a spiritual gift is when the Holy spirit manifests his presence and imparts his power into and through 
individual believers to enable them to exceed the limitations of their finite humanity so that they might faithfully and effectively fulfill certain ministry tasks for the building up of the rest of the body of Christ. We should speak of such gifts as God's presence rather than his presence, like gifts. In bestowing these gifts, God does not grant us something other than himself. The spirit is himself the gift that he gives to his people. Or again, spiritual gifts are nothing less than the Holy Spirit in us, enlightening our minds with revelatory truths, empowering our wills to be able to do things we wouldn't otherwise be able to do, imparting to us the strength and the wisdom to accomplish his gracious purposes in the church. Spiritual gifts must never be thought of as something that has been granted to us by a distant and uninvolved deity. They are instead the Holy Spirit on display in and through human works and human words to build up the body of Christ. The Spirit is himself disclosed or made visibly evident in our midst whenever the gifts are in use. Spiritual gifts are visible and vocal disclosures of divine activity and only secondarily human activity. Spiritual gifts are the way in which the spirit himself makes evident to and through us his presence whenever we do ministry and serve one another. The charismata are God's way of going public among his people. When thought of in this way, it becomes clear that spurning or minimizing spiritual gifts is nothing less than quenching God's spirit and the gracious divine enabling that he would otherwise bring to us. When we affirm and facilitate the exercise of these gifts, we are welcoming God into our midst. Remember this last week, First Corinthians 14, are you zealous to experience God's spirit? Use your gifts to build each other up. Everybody participates with your gifts, not just in any generic way. It's very easy, by the way, when you come into the church, often it's my fault, often it's our fault as leaders to just be like, well, I'm just gonna do whatever I need to do. Like the chairs need to be set up, I'll set up the chairs. It's important that you find your lane. It's important that you find where your gifting is and serve there. One of the things that I want us to do in the future is always have conversations of, Sam, what are your gifts? Let's create space for you to use those gifts every week we get together. How can we do that as a body? And so that's the nature of spiritual gifts. They are gifts from God. They are energizing empowerments from the spirit. They are forms of service and ministry. Every once in a while, I have to get a good Lord of the Rings reference in. So here's this one. Do you remember when the Hobbits and the, the Fellowship of the Ring, they all get gifts from Galadriel before they go on the journey? Gifts are always for the journey. They're for the quest. They're not for you to play with. They're not for you to be entertained by. They're because you will need them with the rest of the fellowship, with the task we have been given in the world. They're gifts for the journey. Final thing, and I'm going to do this really quickly, and this is really the rest of the chapter, but as Hannah read it out loud, maybe you heard it, in verse 15 of chapter 12, down to verse 20, and then starting in verse 21, going down to verse 26, Paul lays out in great imagery two attitudes. One person is, in verse 15, a foot, and is looking at the hand, being like, oh, if only I was a hand. Hands are amazing. They get all the credit. They get the spotlight on them. And I'm just a foot. And if the foot should look at a hand and say, because I'm not a hand, I am not part of the body. That would be a profound misunderstanding of how a body works. Feet are just as necessary as hands in the body of Christ. Verse 21, if on the other hand, the eye says to the hand, I don't have any need of you. Look at this. I can see stuff. You can't see stuff. I can see stuff. 
you would no more not need the rest of the body than another part. And so what Paul is saying here is this, in the body of Christ, not only are gifts given to all of us individually, but there will always be two things simultaneously true for each of us, which is this. And I want you to hear both of these. We need you. If we are going to be what we are supposed to be, we need every single one of you being who you are supposed to be. And so if you are the person who looks in the mirror and says, I just don't know if I have anything to bring to the table. I just wish I was like somebody else. We need you to be exactly who God has created and redeemed you to be. And it is essential that you are here. On the other hand, if you are looking in the mirror, being like, yep, this is great. I love that I am better looking than him. I love that I have more gifts than her. I love that people just naturally enjoy when I'm around. You need us. You need us more desperately than you think you do. And if you get disconnected from the body, you will wither so quickly. One of the things, especially in our cultural context that often happens is people walk away from the church and they do not have categories to experience why they feel lonelier and God feels more distant and Christianity feels more unreal. And they're just like, well, now I'm just, it's it's because you're disconnected from the rest of the body. Here's an illustration of this that I always love here. Many of you will know the names of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, Chronicles of Narnia, Mere Christianity, Lord of the Rings. They were good friends, and they were in this group called the Inklings, and there were a bunch of other guys in the Inklings in Britain around the post-World War II era, and they would get together in pubs, and they would like read each other's stuff, and they would talk theology. Pretty amazing thing to think about. Another guy who was in that group is not as well known today, and his name was Charles Williams. He actually wrote some really great books, and Charles Williams died pretty young, probably died in like his 50s, and after Charles Williams died, C.S. Lewis wrote this paragraph that I find incredibly insightful about how it changed the whole group, the whole community. And he says this, that that he always had a yearning to be a little closer to J.R.R. Tolkien. And there was a sense of like, oh, maybe I can get closer to him now because now like Charles Williams is in between us. And afterwards, here's what C.S. Lewis wrote. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call any man's full being into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's, that's Tolkien, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. I have less of Tolkien. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to what heaven itself will be like, where the very multitude of all the blessed redeemed, which no man can number, increases the fruition, the happiness, the flourishing, which each of us has of God. For every soul, seeing God in his or her own way, experiencing God in his or her own own way, doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That, says an old author, is why the seraphim, the angels, and Isaiah's vision are crying holy, holy, holy to one another. The more we thus share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall have. And then here's the way Tim Keller sums up in one sentence. C.S. Lewis is saying that it took a whole community to know one individual. How much more would this be true of God? That it takes a whole community to really know the grace of God. So as we end, and I really am only going to do this for like one minute, and I know in a sense this will be discouraging because this is probably what you most want to know. How do you know what gifts you have? Here's what I find most interesting, and it's always dangerous to make an argument from silence that no New Testament writer ever tries to answer that question. 
Every New Testament writer assumes that we know what these gifts are and that we know which gifts are ours. And so I would say, how do you know which gifts are yours? What are these gifts? The main way you will find that out is not go online and take a personality test. That's a terrible way to find your spiritual gift. Your spiritual gift has almost nothing to do with your personality. And it's also not, you know, go through this PhD curriculum intellectually to figure out. It's this, spend a lot of time in the body of Christ serving. And over time, you will figure out what you are good at and what you are not good at, how other people experience God's grace through you and how they do not experience God's grace through you. You need to just spend a lot of time in the body of Christ and you will see over time how the spirit shows up. I would love to have coffee with you if you want to talk about this more. We can talk about it, but the main thing is show up, participate, and try to figure out what your gifts are. And over time, you will. And as we do that, we will reflect more of the fullness of God's grace in our midst. So let's pray.